just when you thought there was no hope for baby boomers. It's the Rational Boomer Podcast. Logic, common sense, compassion. Yeah, who knew? Now, here's Mike. Welcome back to the Rational Boomer Podcast. Hope you're having a great day. We have a show today that's kind of a departure from what you're normally used to hearing on the Rational Boomer. Now, I've always said the only people I really want to talk to are people who are listeners. I want people's perceptions and ideas and such. Um, And I wasn't going to be a place where I was going to bring in a bunch of people who didn't know anything about us or what we do uh, to sell a book. That said, I have a gentleman who's joining me today. His name is Peter Quarry. He is a psychologist. He is selling a book, but that's beside the point. The reason he's here today is because it interested me. The whole idea of psychology comes into so many things in our lives. I think somebody other than me telling you who has no experience in psychology, I can tell you all the things I do, but I have no basis from which I come. So, Peter, welcome to the show. Hello. Nice to be here. Now, you're in Australia. I am. It's uh, it's it's evening where you are. It's early morning over here. It's summer where you are. It's freezing cold down here in the Southern Hemisphere. So, uh, But nevertheless, we're joined by the miracle of technology. But yes, I'm Australian. Okay. And you're a psychologist. I am. And, and, and you came to us, uh, you wrote a book, and we'll talk about the book. Um, but 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 tell us the basis of of your uh, I don't know if I'd call it a theory or premise. What what's the message well, you're uh, sending? Okay, so I was very interested when I read about your podcast because you talk about uh, the importance of insight, intelligence, compassion, logic, and truth, etc. I mean, admittedly, in relation to the politics and news of the day. But when I saw that you were interested in insight, I thought, okay, I want to talk to this guy. Now, I'm interested in insight as well, possibly not in the same way that you are, Mike. Okay. I'm interested in insight more from a psychological point of view. Now, what does that mean? Well, if we go right back to uh, you know, Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, he said that knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. And his, his pal Socrates uh, said the unexamined life is not worth living. Now, what are they talking about? They're saying that it is important to, to know yourself, to understand yourself, to examine yourself. And if you do so, you gain what's called insight, which is self-knowledge. Now, um, I, I got interested in this idea, uh, well, obviously, as a psychologist many, many years ago when I, when I did my training. But I started thinking about it, particularly in relation to getting older and the importance of insight as you get older. Um, As I got older, and I'm a a few years older than you, Mike, I'm in my late 60s. Um, And I particularly got interested in it because I read about Jane Fonda, who is one of your compatriots, who's a a person I've always admired. And can I say something about her? Can I say something about her real quick? She's 80 years old and she's still hot as hell. I don't know how that's possible. Well, well, she's extraordinary at at many, many levels. Um, She wrote a book a few years ago called My Life So Far. And in it, she talked about doing what is called a life review. In other words, 
looking back over her life, examining it, as Socrates would say. And she said that it uh, it helped her achieve a peace and a self-awareness, her words, that she had never previously experienced, and that she found that it brought to the surface regrets that need attention and dreams yet to be fulfilled. So what's my book about? My book is about how to actually increase your insight, your self-knowledge, your self-understanding by doing what Jane Fonda called a life review. In other words, looking back and reviewing your life. Right. Let me ask you this. I, you know, one of the things I see in people in America, particularly uh, people I run into, people in politics, it seems yeah. to me that very few people think about what they're doing. They react and they're emotional yeah. and they do it out of fear. So it's a, it's a something they don't think about. They just say, Oh my God, it's in front of me. I got to do something. Absolutely. Look, you're, you're absolutely correct. And um, when, when, when we're in particular times of stress, that tendency gets even stronger. We kind of revert back to our, our, our basic types. I mean, let me give you an example um, of what I'm talking about, which exactly illustrates what you are talking about as well. I first started understanding the issue of insight um, right back when I was at university, um, back in the 70s. And one of the subjects that I did, I think in my third year, was what was called an encounter group, where we sat around and we communicated with one another and we kind of analysed our interactions with one another to try and understand what was going on. And I always remember this. I was talking about something. I can't remember what. And this woman said, Peter, I'd like to give you some feedback. And I turned to her and I said, yes. And she said, I'm finding you very aggressive. And my response was, aggressive? What do you mean aggressive? What the hell are you talking about? (laughs) Well, I'm not aggressive. And it was the first time that I realized that the way I see myself is not necessarily the same as how other people see me. And Mm -hmm. that gap can sometimes be quite large. Um, But gaining insight, learning and understanding yourself better gives you the option, gives you the alternative of behaving in a different way. But I would argue that that sort of change is very difficult, if not impossible, if you first don't have some insight, if you first don't understand what is your tendency, what is your typical behaviour, what are your patterns. So understanding yourself is really, really important. And, of course, I think it gets even more important when we get to our age because we've lived so much of our lives. Let me ask you a dumb question because I think a lot of people are asking this. It's one thing using the term insight. That's a great word. For somebody to have insight, how would you define that specifically? What does that mean that person has to do? Look, um, well, what it is, uh, there, there are two elements of insight. The first is what I just mentioned before, which is the idea of understanding how other people see you. Okay. And that may be very different to how you see yourself, as my example illustrated. The other side of it is knowing yourself. So really understanding, for example, what are your hot buttons? Um, You know, what are the things that kind of, you know, get you going? Um, What is the fundamental structure of your personality? I mean, let me give you an example. Uh, when I did this exercise, because when, when I wrote this book, I, I actually did not intend to write a book. I just decided I wanted to do a life review for myself. And it was only about halfway through that I thought, no, I want to turn this into a book. When I was doing it, when I was writing about my life uh, and doing this life review, 
one of the things that happens is that you start to join the dots. You start to see patterns that perhaps you hadn't seen before. And one of the realizations that I had is that I have a very strong streak of pessimism that runs through my life. Okay. Yeah, you know, and it's funny, I'd always thought that I was a pretty sunny, optimistic kind of guy. And, you know, in fact, if you ask people who know me, they'd say, oh, yeah, Peter's very positive. In fact, I have this deep sort of thread of pessimism, and it came out in a number of ways. For example, I'm a hypochondriac. I always think I'm about to get sick. That's a form of pessimism. When I look at how I invest my money, I'm always down the low risk end of the investment because I always... Um, I remember in my late 30s, I came out of a long-term relationship and I fell into a real funk, a real depression. And it was because, wait for it, I thought I'll never meet anyone again. Right. That's a form of pessimism again. So when I did my life review and I started to join these dots, I realized, wow, I've actually got this tendency towards pessimism that I had never really understood about myself. And the reason that that's useful, I mean, who who cares, you might say, who gives a shit? The reason that it's useful is that going forward, thinking about how I want to live my life in the future, in the several years that I've got left, I want to catch myself when I start getting pessimistic and say, no, wait a minute, Peter, that's just your pessimism talking. There's another way of looking at this. So insight can be very useful to help you change the way you go forward. Well, change, that's a good good point. I think a lot of people will do an insight or think about themselves and they go, that's just the way I am. That's the way I grew up. My mom and dad were like that, so I am like that. I can't change it. I found out in my life you can change it, and it's not easy And I'll give you an example, and maybe you can kind of go off of this. When I was younger, I was a young man, too much testosterone and not enough intellect, you know, and (laughs) and you'd get mad and you'd get upset and you scorch the earth and burn bridges and all this stuff. And after doing that a number of times over my lifetime when I was young, I realized, you know, after I do that, everything gets more fucked up. (laughs) So maybe (laughs) I should change that. Maybe instead of going out of my head, Maybe I should just force myself to stay calm and just think logically and make good decisions. Now, at first, when I started doing that, extremely hard. But over time, it becomes second nature. So what I come to realize is we trained our minds to be where we are now. So that would suggest we can train our minds to do something different. Does that make any sense? Oh, oh, a complete sense, Mike. Total sense. Uh, I mean... What you're saying, and I absolutely agree with you, and I've built my entire career uh, precisely around this idea that people can change and that there there are always choices, always, no matter how bad your situation is, there are always choices. And the probably the most extreme example um, of this is a book by um, a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, a very, very famous book that sure. was written many decades ago and, uh, you know, is, is, is always one of the bestsellers in the sort of self-help genre. And he talked about being um, a prisoner in the Holocaust. Uh, he was Jewish. And um, he said what he found was that 
even in that situation, which is, you know, you can't imagine a worse situation than that. You know, sure, you might think, absolutely. What, what choices do I have being in, you know, in a concentration camp? He said, you always still have a choice about how you mentally deal with that and whether you give up or whether you say, no, I'm going to try and survive. And so, you know, even in the worst of situations, you still have control over how you mentally react to things. Now, that's a very extreme example. I've spent my entire career, Mike, trying to help people realize that they have choice. So, you know, when you are, for example, stressed out of your mind, you always have some choice about, okay, what am I going to not do? What am I going to drop off my to-do list so that I can get things done without being stressed, for example. Um, you know, if I have somebody who's driving me crazy, I always have a choice of reacting in a different way. But I come back to this idea, you have to have insight first before you can actually, you know, make the change. But I, I absolutely agree with you. That's a philosophy that I, 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 I've used in my professional life. And I also use it in my personal life. Um, you know, I, I feel very strongly that I have choice in my life and that I exercise it. Well, you know, one of the things I learned, too, in this process was that um, a lot of people will say things or do things and they're so afraid of being wrong. They'll never acknowledge that they're wrong or making the bad choices. If you're going to do it, if you're going to be insightful about yourself and you're going to try to make changes in your brain, you have to recognize when you're wrong and acknowledge and accept when you're wrong. So you can make the change as opposed to just riding this wrong horse off the freaking cliff. But people don't, people have a hard time with that. Yeah, look, that that's true. Um, but, you know, I think, I think this is why doing this sort of exercise, doing a life review at, at our stage of life, you know, in what Jane Fonda called the third act of life, being over 60, I think is so important because, you know, we are crucially aware at this stage that there is not a lot of time left. Right. It's not that we're about to die tomorrow, hopefully, but, you know, the, there's a limited amount of time left and we all experience living as getting much faster, life getting much faster as we get old, older, let's say. Um, so I think there's an increased kind of emphasis and and an impetus, if you will, to to think about our lives right now and, and to think about our lives going forward and make any changes that we want to do while we still can. You know, um, there's some a, a woman called... Uh, oh, I can't remember her name off the top of my head. She she's a, she was a palliative nurse, and she wrote a wonderful book about people who were literally, you know, in their last weeks of life, and what the regrets are that they said they had. And you know, they'll often say things like, "I wish I hadn't worked that hard. I wish I'd allowed myself to be freer to express my feelings." I wish, I wish I hadn't let so many friends slip by. Um, and I think, I think the idea of regrets, particularly, you know, if you're facing the end, I think is really sad because you don't have time to do anything about it anymore. And I feel strongly that, you know, particularly in your 60s, as you and I are, Mike, we still have probably, you know, 10, 20, 30 years to go. So let's grab this opportunity to have a look at our lives, think about them to gain some insight and to think about, you know, and certainly also to resolve some of the ghosts from the past 
because I think that's important, but also think about how do we want to live our life going forward? And I don't just mean I want to take up golf or right. you know, I want to lose weight. It's, it can be more subtle things like, for example, I want to be less pessimistic or I want to be less fearful or I want to you know, reach out to people more or I want to give more or whatever. So I think now's a great time to do it. You know, Peter, one of the things I see here in America, and it's, I would almost say it's an epidemic in this country, is that everybody you talk to uh, says they have some kind of anxiety. Now, I must be a weird one because I don't have any anxiety. I don't know what I did right or did wrong, but I don't have any anxiety because I don't worry about shit. Uh, and I'll, I'll t- Peter, I'll tell you why I don't worry about shit. People say, how can you not worry? And I, I tell them, look, I've gone through every trial, tribulation, uh, tragedy, horrible thing in my life. Yeah. And here I am at 62 years old, living my best life, having fun, enjoying things. So whatever right. I went through that might have seemed like it was going to be the end, it clearly wasn't. So if I can get through yeah. that, I'm presuming yeah. I can get through whatever's ahead of me. But yeah. uh, is anxiety problems a new issue? Is it just we're recognizing it more? Um, look, I think it's I think it's a bit of both. Um, I mean, anxiety has been around forever. I mean, we are, you know, we are um, animals at the end of the day. And uh, anxiety is a, a useful uh, tool for us when we're in a threat or when there is a demand placed on us because sure. anxiety basically gets our body prepared to deal with things. Um, I, I think there is no doubt that the level of anxiety has increased in recent decades. And I would, I would put that down to two factors. Certainly, I think the level of intensity of life has just got so much faster. I mean, you know, when I got my first job in, what is it, 1977, it was nine to five. Now, nine to five meant nine to five. I right. started at nine and I finished at five. Well, there's no such thing as a nine to five job anymore. You know, people are expected to be available 24 seven. You know, they're constantly on their devices. Um, the, the, the level of pressure on people at work, uh, has, you know, increased so much so in, than, you know, when I was young in the 70s. So I think the demands on us uh, in, in the current society uh, are much greater than they have been. And so that increases the level of stress. I think people are kind of constantly getting stressed, whereas in the past, you know, you'd get stressed, but then you'd have a little bit of an opportunity to kind of calm down again. So I think part of it is the, the level of pressure in our society. I do think, and I, I'm, I'm going to get massacred for this, I do think, though, that people are getting overly sensitive around a lot of issues. And Agreed. There's a, there's a tendency to pathologize what are normal life experiences. I mean, my partner teaches at a, a university and describes constantly how students, you know, will email or phone or come in and say, oh, you know, I had, a boy, I had an argument with my boyfriend. I can't put in my assignment or I can't <laughs> do the presentation or what have you. And it's like, Get over it. You know, this is a normal life experience. I mean, you'll hear me. I'm getting a bit passionate about this. You're so aggressive. (laughs) (laughs) Full marks. I hope you're going to edit that out. (laughs) No. I know you're not. I know you're not. Um, uh, No, you're you're misinterpreting um, passion for aggression. Okay. (laughs) Um, But I do do think that um, 
there are normal life experiences, um, you know, little ups and downs that we have that now people are tending to label depression or anxiety, whereas really they're just, you know, part of life's pitter-patter. And I think that is increasing um, and, and that worries me a bit. To be honest with you. Yeah, it seems like people are oversensitive. Um, let me ask you something. Uh, when it comes to anxiety, would you say it's brought on because of this immediate communication we have with everybody? You're not waiting for phone calls anymore. You just text somebody. You got 24 hour news cycles. Are we oh. just overstimulated? Oh, totally. I, I, totally. And this is what I, I mentioned before where the, the demands on us um, from work. Uh, are are much greater than in the past. The the our expectations of ourselves to be slim and good looking and to be having wonderful lives uh, has increased. And I particularly see this. I mean, this is I don't think any news to you. I particularly see this among young people who are constantly glued to uh, you know to Instagram and seeing these images of all their friends and they're all having a wonderful time and they're all slim and they're all beautiful and what have you. And then, you know, you look at yourself and maybe you're not that. So there's this whole pressure to, you know, to be slim and handsome and young and beautiful and having a wonderful time. So, um, you know, I think the pressures on us, on our expectation that, uh, that our, our expectations have uh, are increasing the anxiety. There's no doubt about it. Well, I will tell you this, I'm doing my part to help the situation on TikTok. I mean, much to everybody's chagrin, when I decided to go on TikTok, 60-year-old guy talking about politics with no tricks, no dancing, no lip syncing, nothing. <laughs> but I tell you what, when people watch me on TikTok, they're going to go, I'm better than that. I'm feeling pretty good about myself now. I mean, you know, I, I think I think also the media has a role to play in this. Um, you know, it's funny, I, I tend to consume American politics. I mean, it's just so, I mean, especially as an outsider, sure. it's just fascinating. It's like watching a sitcom, you know, of, of, and you realise this is real. And, you know, you watch these news channels and, you know, the breaking news and, you know, news alert and, you know, and there's always something happening. And, you know, after sort of 20 minutes of watching this, I have to go and I have to go and have a cup of tea and lie down for a while. Um, so there's, you know, there's constantly stuff happening and breaking news. So um, I don't think that helps people. You see, we you've you got to realise we're basically animals and we have evolved over millions of years and the level, the, the rate of change, the, the rate of adaptation to changing environments has tended to be fairly slow. But in just the last 50 to 100 years, the pace of change has increased so dramatically right. that we're not capable of uh, adapting from an evolutionary point of view quickly enough. And so our, our bodies and our minds have kind of been left behind. There's an increasing gap between what we're capable of and what our environment demands of us. And I think that's, as I said before, that's a major reason why everyone's feeling so freaked out. Well, but certainly, I, you know, in, in America, you know, it must be a lot worse because things are crazy over there. Absolutely. They, they are definitely crazy. And I, I put a lot of blame on the media because in my younger days, I remember watching the news and watching 
What we once knew as journalism, and I've said journalism no longer exists anymore because every time you turn on the TV, it's more tabloid oriented. It's always slanted one way or another. They only tell you what they want you to hear as opposed to everything. And that's one of the reasons I did the rational boomer thing is people will say, oh, my God, this is happening. I saw this on CNN. So when I talk about it, I say, "Okay, this is what it says, but this is what they didn't tell you. Now you can get a better perspective of how to feel about this as opposed to how they want you to feel. They want you to be concerned. They want to stir the shit. So you come back and keep watching so they can make more money. That has nothing to do with journalism, and we're not being informed very well. Yeah. And, you know, there's that old saying, if it bleeds, it bleeds. Right. So, you know, uh, the the media has, uh, you know, an incentive to – uh, you know, sensationalize everything because people are going to watch, people are going to consume, people are going to see the advertising and so on. But um, look, I, th- I think, you know, going back to the idea of us as boomers, um, I think we have the opportunity to do an exercise like a life review and uh, and reflect on our lives and identify what we can learn about life and how to lead a good life. And I think that this is not just useful for us in terms of our own lives going forward, Mike, but it's also an opportunity for us to pass on this wisdom to other people. And when I thought about writing my book, a a large motivation was, I wonder whether I can identify some some things that I can pass on to others. And, uh, you know, there's actually quite an established psychological urge that happens uh, in later life. It, uh, the developmental psychologist Eric Erickson called it generativity. And that is this urge to pass, to, to, well, to look after other people, to look after those who are following us and following in our footsteps and to pass on this wisdom, pass on this knowledge to others. So I think we have a responsibility to do that. And uh, I, I, I feel very strongly about that. I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, one of the things I rationalized when I was younger was, you know, young people don't want to hear from old people. You know, they want to push them aside. And But but I rationalize out the fact that if I'm having a problem, I want to talk to somebody who's also had that problem in the past. Maybe they made the right decision or the wrong decision, but as long as I know a little bit more, it should help me and I have to make my decision. It's a matter of getting those people yeah. to accept it. And and that's what they have to understand. Here, here's the interesting thing that I find hilarious. I'm a boomer. My kids are millennials. And you always hear this butting of heads between millennials and boomers. And millennials will say, well, we did all this. We wasted money. We were selfish. And we will say, oh, these kids are lazy. They won't do anything. But here's the ironic thing. As a boomer, I raised millennials. If I got a problem with millennials, maybe I should look at myself because I'm the one that fucking raised them. And the millennials, I told my son this one time, I said, you want to complain? Let me remind you that when you were seven years old and we went into Target and I bought $300 worth of plastic Batman shit, you weren't complaining then. (laughs) Great story. I love it. Look, I want to go back to something you said that um, younger people don't want to listen to right. what we older right. folks have to say. And I want to disagree with you, Mike, respectfully okay. and, and oh. non-aggressively. That's fine. That's why I appreciate that. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think they do want to hear what we have to say because I, I do think they are younger people 
are looking for answers, are looking for wisdom, are looking for some ideas about how to do things. And they do recognise that we have a lot of the answers, not all of the answers, but some of the answers. I think it's a matter of how we go about sharing our wisdom with us, with them. Good point. And, you know, our tendency can be to get frustrated and to say, look, you know, you should do blah, 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 blah. And, of course, when you start lecturing to people, they switch off. And the trick, I think, is to try and find a way to build a bridge with them. And part of that is also listening to their point of view. I mean, I always remember when I trained as a psychologist, um, one of the lectures that really kind of inspired me was that there are two there are two ways to help people. One is by telling them, giving them advice. So, you know, you should be doing blah, blah, blah. Right. And the other one, it's called the non-directive approach, is to help them solve the problem themselves. And, and often this can involve asking a series of questions like, well, Mike, what do you see as the problem? What do you think you can do about it? What is the best option among these three possibilities that you've mentioned? Okay, so what are you going to do na- next? In other words, using what is called the Socratic technique, which is to pose a series of questions guiding the other person towards an answer that you have got in mind, by the way, but you are not lecturing them. You're guiding them by asking a series of questions. You're guiding them. Now, what happens when you use that approach is that you don't have the kind of conflict because when, when you try to tell people what to do, when you say, look, this is what I think you should do, what they do is they play a game with you. And the game is called the yes, but game. Mm-hmm. So I might say, look, you should be saving more. Well, yes, but I'll never be able to afford a house anyway. Or you shouldn't be eating so much. But yes, but I'm under stress and help. food helps me. So when you try to advise people by telling them what to do, they react against this by going, yes, but blah, blah, blah. So a much better way is to build a bridge by instead asking questions and helping them. Incidentally, and you'll like the little segue I'm doing here, I hope. Um, This also can work, not always, can work with people with with whom you have major disagreements like politics or, you know, where society is going. The tendency we have with people who we disagree with politically, let's say, let's say Trump voters for argument's sake, um, is to start, is to start lecturing them. Well, you know, blah 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 blah, and of course they just react. They mm-hmm. they just put up a defence. They go yes, but. So we have to try and find ways, be it with younger people or with people our age, even we disagree with, of building bridges and 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 listening to them and trying to find areas of common ground. Now it's not easy. I want to say that and underline that. But I think that is the only hope we have of trying to influence other people because otherwise they just say no. You bring up the Trump fans and we'll talk more about this in the second half too, but um, (laughs) you've got another thing to consider with the Trump fans. I think it's not just average people arguing about something they disagree with. I think it's almost, and and I may not be using this term right because I'm not a psychologist, but with yeah. them, it's something more than just a difference of opinion. It's almost a psychosis. I mean, they're, they're willing to believe anything, even though they have proof in front of their face that says otherwise. Yeah. So you're dealing with something totally different than somebody that just disagrees with you. Well, look, I, I know I know where you're coming from, and I understand it, Mike. 
But the interesting thing is, um, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I will. I, am, I, am an <laughs> I know you will. I am an outsider. But my understanding, just to take one example of a lot of the rioters uh, who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, which was extraordinarily horrible, mm-hmm. is that um, a lot of them were business owners, uh, professionals, um, people with tertiary education, you know, university level education. In other words, it's easy to sort of stereotype them and say that they have a psychosis, using your words. But the reality is many of them don't. Now, let, let me explain where I'm coming from here. And, and uh, you know, I, this is this is very difficult. OK, one thing that I have learned in both my personal life and my professional life about conflict Now, when I say conflict, it can be between a husband and wife, between a parent and a child, between a neighbour and a neighbour, between uh, two uh, socioeconomic classes, between two countries even, take Russia and Ukraine. One of the things I've learned about conflict is that what happens as a conflict develops is you start having what's called perceptual distortion. In other words, the way each party sees the other party starts getting distorted, usually towards the negatives. We start seeing them as the bad guy. We're the good guy. They're the bad guy. We are right. They are wrong. You know, what we're doing is good. What they are doing is bad. And when that happens, that only feeds into the conflict more. And so you get a conflict deepening and deepening and deepening, which eventually ends up in, into war. The, one of the ways, one of the ways around this is to try and empathize with your enemy. Now, there, there was a wonderful documentary some years ago called The Fog of War. And it was a, uh, I think it was McNamara, who was one of your Secretary of Defense. Right, uh, right. Going Robert back in McNamara. Years. Uh, yes. Um, and he, it, the, the documentary, and I, I strongly recommend this documentary. It's very, very powerful. He talks about the Cuban Missile Crisis and, you know, a lot of the conflicts that, uh, that were faced by the Kennedy administration. And one of the learnings that he had is this idea of empathizing with your enemy, trying to understand where they are coming from. So when, Mike, when you say, well, these people are psychotic, it is quite possible that some of them are, but it is pr- quite probable that many of them aren't. Now, what is going on? What is driving them towards this crazy behaviour? We need to try and understand it to try and build a bridge, if possible. Now, I know this is hard, <laughs> but I think that is a very important thing. And those of us who subscribe to the idea of being rational and using data, people like us, Mike, you and I, on a podcast like this, I think it is particularly incumbent on us to try and build that bridge, to try and understand what is going on here. Why are these people behaving like this? Why do they have these ideas? And seeing if we can build a bridge as opposed to just kind of labelling them, you know, crazies, bad peoples, terrorists, Those labels just reinforce this, we're right, they're wrong, we're good, they're bad idea. And that is not going to resolve anything. That's just going to make the conflict worse. I get what you're saying, and I don't disagree with it. And we're going to take a break here in a minute, but I want to give you something to think about. uh, And we'll talk about it on the other side of the break. 
I understand what you're saying, and that makes all a lot of sense. But what if you have a group of people that genuinely believe they are right, believe that they are saving this country, believing that they are going to be heroes, but what they are doing is without question wrong. It's not a gray area. When you commit insurrection in this country, try to overthrow the government, nobody in a reasonable mind is going to say, Oh, that, they, they might have a point. They don't have a point. They're flat out wrong, but they think they're right. And that's where I'm wondering, where does the disconnect happen in their minds? Well, okay. I, I'm not, I'm not saying that people who commit a crime should be let off because we just want to be warm and fuzzy and empathize with them. That's, um, you know, a crime is a crime and they should be held to account. No question about that. But looking more broadly at that movement of which they are one manifestation, I think we need to try and understand. I mean, if we're going to start trying to heal the wounds and close the gap and bring down the level of of the temperature level, we need to try and understand what is going on now. You know, I'm an outsider. I'm an Australian. I've learned over the years one has to be very careful about making comments about other countries. Um, But it would seem to me, as an observer, once again, I, I may be right or wrong here, it seems to me that one issue that we need to try and understand is why are these people so angry? I mean, there's there's a rage there, obviously. There's an anger. And Trump has tapped into this, and he is he's the ultimate manifestation of this. But we need to try and understand what is what is underneath this, what is causing this. Now, I have my own theories about this, and certainly one of them is the level of inequality in the society. And I'm talking about inequality of opportunity, inequality financially. Um, I mean, America has uh, a huge gap between the richest people and the poorest people. And this is, I mean, I can remember the first time I came to America back in, I think it was the early 80s. I was in San Francisco and I was walking down the street and I'd never seen this before because we don't have this in Australia. I saw these people living on the street in cardboard boxes. Mm -hmm. And then you'd see these kind of stretch limousines driving past. And I remember just standing there looking from one, on the one hand, these people living in boxes. And on the other hand, these stretch limousines driving past thinking, I can't believe this country. This is extraordinary. I mean, we don't have this in Australia. And um, so I, you know, and I don't want to be critical. And I'm very aware. No, be critical. critical. There's a lot to be critical about in this country. You know, I'm, I'm trying to offer an observation. I think, I think the level of inequality in America is one possible factor explaining the rage and the anger. And I think we need to try and move beyond these are bad people to trying to understand what's beneath this, what is the cause of this, and then trying to do, I mean, that then raises a whole other issue, trying to do something about it. So, for example, um, you know, on the hopeful side, I see that uh, your president has just introduced a policy um, excusing or reducing the student loan pressure on people. Great idea, you know, great way of dealing with this inequality. I mean, just very, very quickly, I know you want to go to a break. I I met some delightful Americans um, in Thailand a couple of years ago. They They were in their late 40s both super bright, both had PhDs, one worked in oncology, the other in something else. 
And w- they were telling me that they're still paying off their student loans, right. like in their late 40s. Absolutely. And I was stunned. I mean, I was absolutely stunned by that. And when they talked to me, for example, about health insurance in America, and I told them that here in Australia, we have free hospitals. They were they, they couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. And when they told me stories about people in America, you know, going to the going to a hospital with something and the hospital turning them away if they don't have health insurance, that would never happen here in this country. And the thing that particularly blew me away by what they told me is they said that the interest rate that they were paying on their student loan was set when they took out the loan. And it was something like 8% because uh, interest rates were higher then. And that even though now interest rates are like really low, they're still paying 8% because it was locked in. I, I couldn't believe it. So, you know, I give these examples just by way of illustrating, um, that I think where our energy needs to go is not so much demonizing people is instead looking at the underlying reasons for why people are angry and looking at trying to make make changes around those issues, which then opens up a whole new kettle of fish, I realize. But I think that's where we should be putting our energy. Well, I think you hit on something really interesting, and I, I want to talk about that after this break, the old inequality thing. It's about how people feel in their position in life or their position in their country and such. So let's let's talk about that. We'll take a quick break and we will be right back. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We are back. And, and Peter, I just want to say, I think you make an excellent point about inequality. I think that may be a problem, not only in our country, but in personal relationships and businesses, people not feeling appreciated or not being treated fairly. I think, you know, there's a lot of people in this country that will say, we're the greatest country in the world. And they have no idea that people going broke because they need medicine or going broke trying to pay off school debt. uh, That's just the way it is. Everybody's doing that. But the fact of the matter is throughout the world, we're the only ones doing this to our people. And that is certainly inequality. Yes. I mean, once again, I, I feel I feel cautious about um, wanting to be critical. Uh, I mean, America is an extraordinary country and has many, many, many amazing things about it. Um, The equality issue, I think, is not one of them. Um, And, you know, I want to go back, though, to something we talked about before, which is that we always have choices in our lives. And what I would say to... um, what I would say to all of your listeners is if you agree with what we're talking about, that, yes, there is far too much inequality uh, in America now, uh, particularly financial inequality, but, you know, also a, 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 a opportunity inequality. Absolutely. Um, what are you going to do about it? I mean, what are you going to do about it? Because you have a choice, like, to do nothing and to say, yes, 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 this is a terrible thing. You know, the government should do something about it, and they should, but also you can do something about it. 
Do you give money regularly? Do you donate money to a charity? Do you volunteer some of your time? You know, so I would say to people, if you agree that this is a problem, the next question is, okay, what are you, and I mean you, going right. to do about it? Well, I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why I do the, the Rational Boomer podcast. Yeah. Everybody would say to me, yeah, this is wrong, but what can I do about it? And I think one of the reasons we are where we are is because for decades and decades, there's been a, an epidemic of apathy. People just assume I can't do anything about it. And one of the reasons I started the Rational Boomer podcast and the Rational Boomer TikToks is that I wanted to do something. I wanted to speak my mind. I wanted to see if I could pull together of a lot people of a like mind and maybe get a louder voice. Now, yeah. what I'm doing might be minuscule, might be minuscule. It may not have any effect on fixing anything, but when I'm dead and gone and my granddaughter looks back at this time in history, she can at least say, Grandpa tried, yeah. man, he tried. And yeah. if enough people just try, we can do some changing. Absolutely. I, 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 I feel I've met you in another life, Mike, because I <laughs> totally agree with what you're saying. Um, look, for me, the, the frame that I use to make sense of what you're talking about is, is the idea of finding a purpose in life. And I, right. I talk about this in the, in the book because I think that's a very important thing to, to work on uh, in looking at your life. What is, what is your purpose in life? And the way I make sense of the idea of purpose is that it has three elements. The first element is to identify what it is that you can do better than most other people. Right. The, writer, the writer Charles Handy called this identifying your golden seed. What is your golden seed? What, what is the skill or ability or competence that you have beyond other people? Now, in your case, Mike, clearly it's broadcasting. You, you, you know, you've got a lot of experience doing that. You're great at it. You're a very good interviewer. You've got quite a nice voice. <laughs> you understand the technology. This is something that you can do better than most other people. In my case, as a psychologist, what I've learned is I have a skill in making psychology simple, in being able to explain psychological concepts in a way that people can understand. I've had 40 years experience doing it. So the first element of a purpose is knowing what your golden seed is. And what I say to people in the book is that if you don't know what your golden seed is, try asking 10 to 20 people who know you and ask them the question, what is it you think that I do better than most other people? And then listen for the trend. So that's number one. The second element of having a purpose in life is to find a way to actually express or leverage or use your golden seed. So in your case, it's having this um, podcast. In my case, for example, it was writing this book. So you've got to find a way to utilize it. Now, the third element, and this is the really, really crucial one, is that you've got to use your golden seed, find a way to leverage it in the service of others. In yeah. other words, it's, it's not about fame or fortune or self-aggrandizement or having a bigger and bigger house all the time, which is what a lot of people are motivated by. But rather, if you let go of that and instead think about the purpose of your life is to use your seed, your, your skill in the, perp in the service of others, that is the real game changer. 
And that's really what we're, you and I are both talking about. And, of course, from a psychological point of view, we know that altruism, in other words, doing things for other people, makes you much happier. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I, I, I run into this a lot, there are people that I know are of my age, they work for 30 years, they're worn out, they're tired, and they're ready to just sit on the couch and vegetate and watch TV. And I tell people, I said, whether you're 62 or 68 or 72, in my mind, at least for me, I got to be chasing something all the time. I've got to have a goal that's out there that I'm trying to reach. Otherwise, I'm not living my life. I'm just waiting to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, I couldn't agree. I couldn't, once again, I'm finding myself agreeing with most things that you're saying, Mike. Um, look, I think sitting on the couch, I mean, is not a good idea. Certainly, if you've had a busy life, you might want to take a while to have a good rest. You might want to go on a road trip or whatever. But I think then you've got to say, okay, I'm retired. I've had a bit of a rest. Now what? And you've got to find something to do that is meaningful. And I, I strongly recommend to people this idea of finding a purpose in your life, if you haven't already got one, uh, using those three elements. Because the reality is um, nowadays we're living a lot longer after retirement. I mean, I think estimates are on average around 30 years post-retirement. So we have a lot of time. And in fact, you know, I would argue that you can have another career. You don't have to stop and, you know, just watch TV. You have another career or go back and do some learning. I mean, when I retired, um, I took a year off and I went traveling and had a great time. And then I came back and I thought, okay, now what do I want to do? And among other things, I decided to go to art school because I thought I've always wanted to paint. So I went and did a diploma of art and it was a terrific experience. I mean, I was the oldest student by a huge factor, um, but uh, it was a wonderful experience. So you got to think about what to do because most of us have quite a lot of time left. We, we do. We do have a lot of time left and we've got to figure out how to use it wisely. Otherwise, we're just going to damn ourselves to boredom and uh, despair and and depression. We haven't and, specifically... And, 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 and we will be on our deathbed having those regrets that I right. talked about uh, exactly. earlier. And, and then it will be too late. And that would be awful, I think. That's my greatest fear is to be too late and on my deathbed realize something. I want to realize it well before so I can realize actually doing it. We haven't, we've talked about your book, but we haven't given the specifics of, of the book. And I think people who have listened this far into the podcast want to get a sense of what the book is, what sure. the name of it is, where they can get it, sure. what it's sure. essentially about. What are they going to get when they buy the book? Sure. Okay. Well, the name of the book is If I Were You, a psychologist puts himself on the couch and right. I'm the psychologist who puts himself on the couch and uh, right. it's available in America currently on Amazon and that's the print version and the ebook version. Uh, an audio book version is just in production right now and should be out within the next few months. Um, look, the book is about how to do a life review. In other words, how to, unpack your life, make sense of your life. Uh, and, you know, we know, we know that writing about your life can be a really useful thing to do, particularly if you've had any kind of trauma in your life. But the interesting thing is the, the researchers found that the people who tend to do best 
from writing about their life are people who tend to write and use expressions like, it now makes sense to me that, or, well, when I join the dots, I now realise this, um, or I've come to understand such and such about my life. In other words, the people who write about their life who get the most benefits are people who don't just describe what happened, but they also kind of unpack it, they analyse it, they they try to make sense of it. So that's what the book is about. And I talk about how to do it, and then I demonstrate it by doing it on myself. Hence, I lie on the couch myself. Can you give us the cliff notes of how to do it prior to somebody well, writing a book? Okay, the so, book? So, so, so to really kind of simplify it, the first thing that you need to do is obviously write about what happened in your life. And that can feel very kind of daunting to people and a bit scary, like, where do I start? So I, I give a very simple method, Mike, and that is start by breaking your life down into a number of what I call eras. And an era could be your 20s or your era could be, you know, when you had pink hair or when you were in a rock band or when you were, you know, lived in the house by the river. So an era can be whatever makes sense to you. And I suggest to people that they, they identify between eight and 12 eras and actually write them down in kind of chronological order. Then take the first one, the first era, and actually write up, well, what actually happened during that era? You know, this happened and this happened, and blah, blah, blah. And then once you've written it up, that's when you actually look back and you start asking questions. And the questions might be simple questions like, okay, what, what was good about that era? What was not good about that era? What might I have done differently if I had my time again? What can I learn about myself from what happened during that era? So there are questions like that which really can apply to any era of your life. But then there are other questions, and I go obviously into this in the book, there are other questions that relate more to specific eras. So, for example, you know, in your 20s, we tend to fall in love for the first time. Not always, but, you know, this is most common in that era. And so there are interesting questions about why is it that I'm attracted to certain sorts of people? Why do I tend to fall in love with this type of person rather than that type of person? Um, there are other questions that are more relevant, for example, to childhood. And, and, and maybe, Mike, I can give a, an example of, of, from my own life uh, to illustrate uh, the, the sort of questions that are useful here. Um, I had a very difficult childhood. Uh, my father died when I was two. My mother was German and uh, she had actually lived through Germany during the Second World War. So, you know, you can imagine what that was like. Um, She was a very needy person and was quite uh, emotionally inappropriate with me as a child. Um, uh, I also then realised when I was 13 that I was gay, which in those days, the late 60s, was not a really great experience. No, nowadays... Nowadays, half the kids who are gay come out on Facebook. You know, in my day, there was no information. There was no sex education. There was nothing. You know, I remember looking up homosexuality in the, in the um, encyclopedia and it said that it was, you know, a mental disorder, 
<laughs> so, you know, not a happy time. I always felt throughout my adult life angry about my childhood. Uh, in fact, I had a bit of a kind of victim kind of chip on my shoulder kind of thing. You know, why me? Why did I have to have the crazy mother? Why did my father have to? Why couldn't somebody else's father die? So I had this kind of low-grade anger about my childhood, really well into my adulthood. When I did my life review, when I put myself on the couch and wrote about that era, one of the questions that I asked myself is, is there another way that I can look at my childhood that results in me feeling better about it than I actually do? This is a tech, this question is based on a technique called narrative editing, the idea of editing the stories that we tell ourselves about our lives. And when I posed that question, Mike, I realized there is an answer. And that is that as difficult as that childhood was, it developed in me two life skills, resilience, which is the ability to bounce back from adversity, and adaptability, which is the ability to cope with change. I have those two skills, resilience and adaptability, in spadefuls, and they have been incredibly useful in the life that I've led um, to now. So now when I look back on my childhood, instead of feeling angry, instead of feeling a victim, I'm actually glad that I had it because of what I gained from it. So that's an example of right. how by asking questions of particular eras, you can actually gain things. I, really I, can, I, can, I can relate to that too, because I had a similar circumstance. Uh, I grew up, my mother was wonderful. My father was a narcissistic, sociopathic, pathological liar. He's very successful wow. in life. This is why I have this certain anger for Donald Trump, because I know yes. the personality. I live through the personality. Clearly. Clearly, And as much as I look back and, and there were sad and hard times about it, I did. I also gained a skill that I probably wouldn't have gained. And when my father was younger and I was younger, he would get mad. And when he would get mad, he would say and do things outrageously. And it was scary for a little kid. So yeah. as a little kid, I paid very close attention to him. I watched his facial features, his mannerisms, what he was saying. Mm -hmm. And I could tell when he was going to go to the dark side. So yeah. I would use humor or whatever it is to try to pull him away for it. So I was constantly analyzing this guy. And what that turned into as I got older was I do that to everybody. I yes. Maybe not to that extent, but I always look at people and try to read them right off the bat. And then when I yeah. was in sales or dealing with people, it was very yeah. beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, so, people, people would yeah, say, or, I, I want to go back in life and change everything. I don't. All yeah. the bad, all the good. I don't want to change anything because I'm happy about who I am now. And if I changed yeah. it, I might be different now. That's, that's, that's exactly right. Um, and, you know, when I, when I had this kind of breakthrough, and, and, and by the way, Mike, I'm sure some of your listeners are probably thinking, hey, this guy's a psychologist. You just worked this out. Well, the reality is, yes, because you know what? I'm human. I'm not perfect. Surprise, surprise. So, um, you know, and I guess sometimes we, we, we hang on to particular stories that we tell ourselves about our lives. And it's hard to change going right back to what we talked about right at the beginning of our conversation. It's hard to change. But I am now glad that I had that childhood. Um, so, you know, the idea of doing this life review is, is that there are, I think there are three benefits 
One is this idea of making peace with the past. And, you know, a lot of people have had a lot of trauma in their past, which they carry with them. And it's about trying to make peace with that. The second benefit for me of doing this life review goes once again back to what we were talking about earlier, Mike, this idea of insight, getting to know yourself better. And there is a a mountain of psychological research that shows that people who understand themselves, who have good insight, who have good self-knowledge, tend to have more successful relationships. They tend to do better at school. They do better at work. Um, If they're bosses, they tend to have more satisfied uh, employees. If they're running companies, they tend to be more profitable. So, you know, it's a good thing to be more insightful. And the third benefit of doing a life review, as I think we've also touched on, is this idea that it can help you think about what you want to change going forward. So, The steps are you start by breaking down your life into a number of eras, you write what happened, and then you unpack by asking a series of questions. So you essentially interrogate your life. And uh, I I can only recommend that I I found it an extraordinarily positive exercise. Well, and and, and I think people need to understand too, and I'm guessing here, and you'll correct me. um, When you wrote this, when you did this unpacking, and then you yeah. ultimately turned it into a book. An average Joe like me or somebody listening to the podcast, the intent of writing this down isn't for other people to read. I sense it's more about getting it off your shoulders and onto the paper in a way of projecting it and a way to analyze it yourself. Because sometimes, you know, people are most afraid of the unknown and they've got all these unknown things in their bodies. So they're scared to death all the time. If you lay them out on a paper, you can maybe rationalize that no, it's not that scary. I, I understand it's, this. It's, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. Look, it's very funny. I was a, a guest at a, a major literary festival here in Melbourne um, a few months ago, and I was being interviewed about my book. And uh, a guy was in the audience. He, he asked a question, and he, he was a boomer for sure. I, I would say he was in his 60s. And he his question was, look, I really want to do what you're talking about. I want to write about what's happened in my life uh, and try to make sense of it. And, but he said, but I'm scared that if I start writing this down, someone someone might find it and read it. And when I heard this question, I, I said my, res- my response was, are you scared that somebody else is going to read it or are you scared that you are going to read it yourself? Good point, yeah. And, yeah. It, and he kind of looked at me <laughs> and he said, mm, yeah, and that was that. So I, I think you're right. I think it can be potentially scary, but I think that's a good scary. You're absolutely right. When I when I started this book, I did not want to write a book. I decided to do a life review. I'd read about Jane Fonda. I'd read uh, some other things that had said that doing a life review at this age is a good thing to do. And even though I've got a long career producing videos and producing uh, a lot of educational material, I thought, no, I don't want to write a book. I don't want to have that commercial pressure on me. I just want to do this as an exercise for me. And in fact, Mike, I didn't tell anybody about it. I just thought, I'm going to keep this quiet. I don't want anyone asking me about it. I want to do it for me. And it was about a half to two thirds of the way through the book. When I started reading what I had written, I thought, no, I want to share this with other people um, not because of, you know, I'm going to make money out of it or get famous. I, I don't care about that. That's not my motivation. 
I, I, I decided to publish it as a book because I really do believe that it has something that can help people, particularly of our age, help people make sense of their life. And, you know, going back to Eric Erickson, the developmental psychologist who talked about this urge that we have in later life for ego integration, in other words, to make sense of our lives. He said, if we don't make sense of our lives, we can really feel um, despair in later life. So I think it is a really important exercise to do. It's not just kind of a frivolous, oh, yeah, let's just do it for the fun of it. It is really an important thing to do at this stage of life to make sure that we feel good about life going forward. So that, that's why I wanted to get it published. And that's why I'm speaking to people like you to try and, um, you know, get the message out. I mean, if you buy my book, you don't, I don't care. Just have a go at doing it anyway. Start by identifying the eight to 12 eras of your life. That can be a very interesting first exercise what are the eras of my life? How would I break my life down? Do that as a first step and then write up era number one and then just imagine that you're asking yourself some questions about well, what happened, what worked, what didn't work, what could I have done differently, what have I learned? Even just posing those questions and trying to have a kind of dialogue with yourself can be incredibly interesting and useful. You know, it's interesting that you bring this up because I've, I've done – some writing. I've never written a book or anything, but I've done some writing and I do all right with it. And and part of me had always thought that I wanted to write down just like what you're saying about my life, but not so much for, for therapy for myself. I feel very comfortable with myself. I know exactly what I went through and I know exactly what I'm doing, dealing with it. Uh, but I wanted it to be something that my granddaughter or grandson would read 25, 30 years from now, because the only way they see me right now is 60-year-old, 62-year-old grandpa. Well, 62-year-old grandpa was much different when he was 30 and when he was 20 and when he was 15. And, and, And I thought it might give them some insights to themselves. You know, if they're going through some things that that, that they don't understand or or feel guilty about, they say, well, grandpa did that shit. Yep. Yeah. Look, I'm um, a lot of a lot of people our age do want to write uh, about their lives and about what's happened in their lives, not just to them, but also to the rest of their family. And they want to do it mainly so that they can kind of pass on a bit of a family history to generations right. that follow. And I think that's a great idea. I, I totally support that. And I know, at least here in Australia, I don't know about in America, a lot of the community colleges uh, are running short courses on memoir writing, and they're packed. I mean, they've got waiting lists. Right. Um, and I think that's a great idea. But the, the thing is, though, Mike, uh, often what tends to happen with those memoirs is they're purely descriptive. You know, this happened and I got married and then I moved here and then I had this child and that's fine. I'm interested in the second part and that is the unpacking, the making sense of. So if you write up your 10 eras, even if you just ask one question of each era and that is what can I learn from reflecting on that time what can I learn now that I can pass on to those who follow just asking that one question at least helps to sort of do the analysis and the unpacking so you're not just describing what is happening you're also extracting learning that you can pass on to others so um, it's you know it's not just about describing it's also about this 
um, analysis, this this unpacking. I think that's that's the that's the second part that's often forgotten. I tell a lot of stories from my past, and I guess I'm a storyteller of sorts. And people say, "You've got all these great stories. You're a great storyteller." And I always tell them, "We all do. You just have to be able to recognize the story for what it's worth, and be yeah. able to pass it along, understanding what it meant." or what it didn't yeah. mean. Uh, everybody's got a good story. Everybody's got a bunch of good stories. It's just that you've got to give yourself credit to have a good story. Well, you know, um, this is why I suggest if you're going to do this exercise, don't tell anybody about it. Don't, don't go and read it out to somebody. Um, don't, don't discuss it. Just do it as a private personal activity because then your creativity will flow and you won't have that kind of internal editor saying, oh, no, don't tell this story, that's boring, or this bit, or, you know, just do it for you. What what I found much to my amazement when I started this, it, it, it just flowed. You know, people afterwards said, oh, did you have any writer's block? I can honestly say to you I did not have one day of writer's block. The, the thing just flowed out of me and I think... I think it's because at this age you want to do this exercise. You you actually have an urge to do it. And so, you know, the stories of my life of which, <laughs> you know, some of them are pretty hairy, let me tell you. Um, I, in fact, I have to tell you one story just digressing. I, I was interviewed on um, on radio here in Australia a couple of months ago and uh, the the woman interviewing me, um, had read the book and uh, she was asking me various questions about it. And then she said, um, uh, actually, uh, I'd like you to read a little bit from the book, Peter. Is that okay? And I said, yeah, sure. No worries at all. And I made the crucial mistake of saying, why don't you choose which passage <laughs> you'd like me to read? Yeah. And she said, she said, okay, sure. I'd like you to tell, I'd like you to read the passage where you describe your first LSD trip. <laughs> and it was like, okay, that's not quite what I would have chosen for national radio, but I read it, I read it and, uh, and, and it was a lot of fun. And, and then I had to ask the interviewer on radio, seeing as she put me in that spot, I said, by the way, have you ever tried LSD? <laughs> and there was, there was a little bit of a silence. And then she said, actually, I have. So at least uh, you know, it wasn't. <laughs> It wasn't just me out on the limb. She put herself out there as well. Well, I got to think that a lot of people who are writing this down, like you do, like you say, they do some self-editing. If they know somebody's, if nobody's going to read it, if that in their mind is set, there are going to be people who will edit out embarrassing moments in their lives, like the LSD trip or whatever experience you might have done. And to me, it seems like if you're going to do this life review type thing, those embarrassing things or those that are most traumatic to you are the exact ones you should be writing down. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, I've I've been asked a number of times, um, you know, in interviews that I've done about the book, uh, interviewers have said, well, you know, you've been pretty honest about your life, about, you know, drugs and sex and, you know, depression. And, uh, you know, don't you feel that this might compromise your professional reputation as a psychologist and i i have two answers for for that one answer is look i'm at the i'm at the age like you mike well i don't care that much so yeah. much anymore about what people think and it's that's such a liberation but the the second thing when i when i was when i decided to publish the book and i read it and i read about some of the hairy tales that i told 
I thought of Joan Rivers, the the wonderful American comedian who died a few years ago. There was a, you know, she lived into her 80s and was working and, and was terrific. And they had made a documentary about her called A Piece of Work. Right. I don't, I don't know whether you've seen it. It's really good. I have. And it follows her around and, uh, you know, it's pretty warts and all. So, you know, you see her in all sorts of situations. And I, 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 I listened to an interview with her a couple of years after the documentary came out and the interviewer asked her, you know, you were pretty honest in that documentary, you know, why did you do that? And Joan Rivers' response was, look, if you're going to do something like this, you got to let it all hang out. Otherwise, just don't do it. And I think that that was really good advice. And I took that advice on board. And that's why the book has got some pretty, you know, pretty gory details um, uh, about what I got up to in my life. I mean, re- and I'm, t- I'm talking about really gory details. But, you know, that's the truth. And for me, having now published this book, Mike, with all those details in it, I feel such a sense of freedom and liberation. Like it's all out there. There's nothing to hide anymore. Uh, I mean, we talk about coming out of the closet sexually. I feel I've come, come out of like the entire closet in terms of everything. And it's very liberating. It's a great feeling. It is very liberating. This is something I learned long ago. Um, I've always been pretty blunt, pretty out there, said what I say. And I don't hide anything. There are always people who will say, don't tell people this, don't tell people that. And what I found is when you do that, you give people leverage over you. If you tell them everything, they got nothing. Like, for example, when I was 29 years old, I had testicular cancer. I'm right. at my prime age. I had one child. Yeah. I was going to have another child. People said, yeah, don't talk about that. That might uh cause people to question your masculinity or something because you yeah. had to have this surgery and stuff. I said, fuck it. Yeah. Yeah. I had what I had. And, and had I kept it a secret, then somebody would have said, Hey, did you hear Mike had this? Yeah. Fuck it. I yeah. had what I had. I, I, I admire you, Mike. I, I wish I could say that I was as brave as you were. Um, uh, my big secret when I was younger was that I was gay. Right. And, well, that's uh, that's a little different situation given the time frame. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, and I, I'm not. I, I don't beat myself up about that. Um, and you know, I, I think about. I, I know a lot of my contemporaries at the time said, "Oh, you know, you should be more out. You should, you know, tell your parents and or your, my mother in that case." I mean, I never told my mother, and she went to her grave not knowing. Um, I can remember I used to be on Good Morning Australia as the psychologist, and I remember. This was back in the 90s, and I remember we got a letter from a, a viewer, a parent who had a gay child and didn't quite know how to handle it. And that would have been a wonderful opportunity for me to say, well, you know, as a gay man, I can say blah, blah, blah. I didn't. Um, I made a decision, rightly or wrongly, that to come out, uh, certainly professionally, might have dented my professional credibility. And, you know, looking back on it, you know, I, I accept that the, the times were different and I had my reasoning rightly or wrongly. Um, now I'm completely out. Uh, uh, I mean, for me, the, the, the final stage of coming out only happened about three and a half years ago when I got married. Um, uh, finally, the, the law changed here in Australia and uh, my then partner and I decided to get married. And, and standing up in front of 100 people, um, you know, publicly professing 
my love and commitment um, felt to me like the final stage of coming out, uh, even though I was, what, like 64 or whatever it was at the time. Right. Um, so, you know, it's been a journey for me. But, you know, uh, writing about all of this has been really interesting uh, and has confirmed for me that I made the right decision. You know, I could have made a dis- different decision, um, which might have been right or wronger, but I, I gave myself permission to say, look, I, I was right for me then. And that gives me a lot of peace. Like I said, I tend to be blunt and kind of in people's faces sometimes. I ran across a couple one time who was expressing to me how gay marriage is wrong, LGBTQ is wrong and doing this. And, and I could have argued with them. Yeah. I could have fought with them about it because I feel differently about that. Uh, yeah. But what I did was I said, uh, okay, okay, well, tell me this. What do you two do in the bedroom? What kind of kinky shit are you into? I mean, do you have a swing? <laughs> do you wear whips? Do you have whips? Do you have all that stuff? And they looked at me appalled. They said, that is none of your business what I do in my bedroom. I said, fucking exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Look, um, my experience has been that very often people who are homophobic um, change very quickly when someone they know and love comes out. Not always, unfortunately, but I I had an aunt um, who uh, I was very, very close to. Uh, She had never had children. And in many ways, she was the mother I wish I'd had. And we had a really, really, really good relationship. And it wasn't till I was in my 40s that I came out to her. And, oh, by the way, she had been very homophobic before then. She would often make very derogatory comments about about gay gay people. Um, And it was only when I came out to her in my early 40s that her attitude changed like that, like overnight, because she loved me. And one of two things had to change. Either she had to stop loving me or she had to change her view about um, about gays and lesbians. It's called cognitive dissonance. You know, when right. you've got two right. views that are in conflict with one another, one has to go. So she loved me so much that she let go of that. And uh, I think it was a year or two later, uh, my then partner and I went to visit her and she gave up the marital bed for us, went and slept on the couch in the living room and uh, and loved my then partner, adored him. Uh, so, you know, people can change. They can change. And I think uh, it's important that people do consider that. We're, we're about ready to wrap things up here. Um, Peter, I, I just want to say if people want to see Peter, see his face, or you can go to his website. It's peterquarry.com, P-E-T-E-R-Q-U-A-R-R-Y.com. And why don't you tell us about the book again? Because I think a lot of people may want to look into the book because it may have hit some points in their head. Terrific. Well, look, um, uh, yeah, um, my website's got, uh, you know, some information about me and, you know, various video clips. I think there's actually a clip of me in 1990 on Good Morning Australia when I was like in my mid-30s. The book is called If I Were You, A Psychologist Puts Himself on the Couch. Uh, In the United States, it's available currently on Amazon. So go there and uh, you'll find it there. And, uh, you know, uh, if, if anybody gets it and reads it and finds it useful, I'm always fascinated and interested and welcome feedback. If you don't like it, that's fine as well. 
my uh, contact details are on my website. Drop me a line. Let me know what you think. If you have any questions, more than happy to uh, to engage in a dialogue. So, uh, 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 you know, I hope you enjoy it, uh, but let me know. Well, Peter, as much as this has been a departure for the Rational Boomer podcast, it's a pleasure to sit down and talk to you. It's always interesting to me to uh, talk to all kinds of people. And uh, the fact that you're in Australia, the fact that you're a psychologist, I found very interesting. And that's why I wanted to talk to you. Well, listen, Mike, thank you so much for having me. Uh, It was a lot of fun. And uh, I found myself agreeing with you (laughs) immensely. Uh, And listen, I I want to say to you, great job with this podcast. I think it is something that is needed. Uh, I salute you for doing it. And, uh, you know, you've clearly got your purpose in life. Keep it going. All right. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, Folks listening, have a great day and uh, we will talk to you again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Rational Boomer Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next time. Next time.